Welcome to the Weave Podcast. My name is Sarah Resnick, and I'm the host of this podcast and the owner of the online weaving yarn shop, Gist Yarn and Fiber. I am so thrilled to welcome Smita Paul to the Weave Podcast today. Smita is the founder of Indigo Handloom, which works with over 500 weavers in rural India to produce beautiful handwoven textiles using ancient techniques. Founded in 2003, their work helps to revive the traditional textile arts of Kadi, which is hand-spun yarn, and handloom weaving, which they do while supporting community development and rural India and working to reduce the carbon footprint of textiles. I first met Smita a few years ago at a trade show in New York City, where I was looking to source fabric for a line of Jewish prayer shawls that I was designing. In a sea of crappy, mass-produced polyester fabrics that lined the trade show walls, I distinctly remember sitting down at Smita's booth and opening up her book of gorgeous fabric samples and really immediately thinking that the fabric there in front of me really had soul. And so I'm honored to have worked with Indigo Handloom several times over the past few years to create a hand-spun, hand-dyed, hand-woven fabric for those prayer shells. And I get so much feedback from my customers about how holy the cloth feels. And so today, I'm really excited to be talking to Smita about her company, Indigo Handloom, why she started it, and how it's growing, and what her vision is for its future. Smita, welcome. I'm so glad to be talking to you today. Wow. Thank you so much, Sarah. That was an amazing introduction. I couldn't have written it better myself. (laughs) (laughs) I would love to start out by hearing the origin story of your company, Indigo Handloom. I understand that in a previous part of your career, you were a journalist. So what sparked your interest to become involved in handloom communities in India? Yeah, it is an odd um, way to get into the fashion textile industry, actually. But even though I was a journalist for about 20 years, I always loved textiles and I always loved fashion. I was a sewer I designed my own clothing. I was always, you know, going into shops everywhere I would land as a journalist and look to see what textiles they had there. And um, I had been working in India for a number of years for American publications and um, and television stations. And I um, would always like I, I realized that every part of India had its own special hand-woven or own special textiles. And that always fascinated me. And um, another thing, it was when I was a child, I grew up in, a, in Nashville, Tennessee, and I had all these, um, my, we were part of the Indian community, and all the saris and the clothing the women would wear to the, the parties we would have were always so exquisite. But then you could never find these fabrics anywhere in the fabric stores. Um, and if you did find fabric from India, it was always usually just um, silk dupion if, or very, very um, cheap stuff. So I knew there was some treasures in India that I, as an American, could, didn't have access to. And um, what happened was I went on a story. I did a story on the textile industry for a magazine. And that took us to all the areas of silk weaving. So all the aspects of silk weaving from the silkworm farms to the to the um, places where they did the trading of the yarn and the spinning. And then we went to traditional factories, but we also went to villages where they were processing and weaving silk by hand. And so that's how I first came into contact with the Henlin village. And I remember where we were walking around in this village that didn't have any source of real uh, reliable electricity. 
and it was mostly mud huts and I was it was like people were it was a busy uh, happening place like everybody was involved with weaving the grandmothers were you know um, spinning the yarn to spindles and and the young people were charting out um, you know young young adults were charting out designs and um, it was an ecot village actually and they were making saris and I started asking questions about like okay so where do these saris go to be sold because they're so they were they were so amazing and because I had been a student of textiles for years I'd always gone to exhibits of uh, textiles around the country and the world and just to educate myself and I knew that the quality they were doing there was higher than any ecot quality I'd seen anywhere and I wanted to know like how like where do they go like who buys this stuff and really it never made it out of that small like the small town next to the village um, and it was just they had just very poor marketing they had this incredible treasure that I felt like the whole world should be at their feet and they were sold in little you know little government shops in the next town and um, that's as far as they got like a few of them would make it to Delhi or Bombay but <clears throat> not really that much um, so that made me curious and then I started asking questions about like how do they get their materials and who pays for it and and because they didn't look like they were wealthy people and um, so I found out that the Indian government had, was subsidizing them um, to keep the industry alive because India used to have like um, millions of weavers in every state and it was actually for the longest time the second largest rural industry so it's incredibly important um, and when India was more socialist minded they set up these organizations to in a way create a continuous loop like they would they would give the yarn to the weavers the weavers would um, make the design and sometimes they'd use traditional designs and sometimes they'd make their own designs then um, the government would buy the saris and they would put them in government retail shops um, so that's in, in a way they kept the tradition alive and they kept um, you know the culture that is are in the textiles alive because they were they're like living garments and living parts of uh, history being worn you know by women but um, I also what I also found out was that India's agreement with the WTO was um, had a stipulation in there that if these continued loops these um, closed loops weren't self-sufficient um, they would eventually get cut because the WTO had rules about not allowing um, about not allowing governments to protect um, their textile industry their native industries which doesn't make any sense because we protect our farmers and um, but anyway that's another story so yeah. I learned all these things and I just thought these people are going to need some help and what they need is a little design change to make it attractive to the West that was a really long answer but anyway yeah that's really that was a really um, interesting answer too so um, you, th there's a big leap from 
thinking <laughs> that something should happen and starting a company to make it happen. And <laughs> what happened in the middle of that leap? And why did you oh, decide to take the my leap? my God. So many things. I know I was just reading this story. Uh, someone posted on my, one of my friends posted on Facebook about taking a leap of faith into the direction, you know, of uh, another profession. It is, there's a lot of, there was a lot of stumbling around for me. Um, I didn't know, really, I didn't have anyone to talk to really. I wasn't from the fashion industry. I never even reported on the industry. So it was a lot of um, just experimentation to see what would work and what wouldn't work. And what I what did work was I I really um, focused on scarves because that was kind of a digestible piece of handloom that people could use. And I knew that the bigger thing would be to use the fabric because that would create more jobs. Um, but we started with scarves and we're still very much in scarves. And um, so yeah, I worked, I started working with an organization that was, a, it was key that they, they allowed me to do very small minimums. That was actually the key. I found someone who was willing to work with me and they're also willing to uh, accept new designs. Some people that I, I mean, I, what I did was I went to a textile um, sort of a trade show in India and I tried to identify the ones that are working with hand-woven fabrics. And then I basically went on a little tour, piggybacking on journalistic stories I had. And um, I just visited them, and most of them were not interested in changing or doing small minimums. But I found one group that was willing to do it. So that's how I started. Um, that's great. And then you were you were selling those scarves to stores or direct to consumer, or how, how did you build out a market for them in the U.S.? Well, I I went to trade shows, um, which I had in the beginning mixed results with. Um, it really takes some time to figure out which is the best trade show, and um, so I experimented with those. I had some some success with that, but then. Um, there's, it's a very expensive route to take because each trade show can cost from five to ten thousand dollars, including you know, including setup and help and all those things. So I quickly ran out of money, whatever money I had, um, experimenting with that <laughs> way of doing it, and then I found a small space in a kind of a up-and-coming neighborhood in Brooklyn. And I decided to open just a studio that I could work in. And also in the front, I would have, like, I decided that, like, trying to get other people to embrace handloom was harder than, than, like, in a way, showing them that they can do that. So I decided to start making clothing um, with fabric to show, to show other designers that this, how this can be used. And um, so I just made some very simple designs, but then they started selling out of my studio. And I was like, well, maybe I could do this. And then this, again, would just be a way of showing people. And then that grew into a store in Brooklyn. In the same neighborhood, I opened a retail store. And um, so I sold out of the retail store, and it was actually going pretty well. We had a, 
a small little production unit that we worked with in Manhattan and um, and we cut our own stuff in the back of the studio and um, we made very very small amounts of clothing but it was selling in the neighborhood and what happened was then I started a track instead of like trying to um, go out what I was finding when I would try and sell the fabrics to designers is they they really did not understand what the benefits of handwoven fabrics were. And I realized this is huge education. I have I have to you know effort that I have to make, and they also want everything way faster than I could deliver it. So that was it was like two challenges that I I, I was like it was too daunting. So I was like okay I'm going to sell directly to the public. And what happened was because I was visible in the store, designers started coming to me and asking me what is this fabric and why is this so different and then and then I had their ear and I could explain it and then they started ordering fabrics from me um, they were mostly young designers uh, you know I find that the younger generation is much more interested and like much more um, committed to environmental issues and environmental fabrics friendly fabrics so <clears throat> they were my first customers but what also happened was um, Bigger companies started coming in too. Just, um, it, just because you're in New York and you don't know who's going to come into your store, there's so many people who are attached to huge companies that just walk around in the streets. And um, <clears throat> uh, we had people coming in from West Elm. I had people coming in from um, Coach. I had people, and then I had a woman come in who was from Eileen Fisher, and. The Eileen Fisher one stuck. Like so, they they had actually tried um, they had tried handloom and it hadn't hadn't really worked to confine like a reliable source of it. So we started working together, and that's that's been a continuous uh, like we've continued our relationship, and that's that's been a big part of our success is working with them. That's great. So you mentioned when you when you first decided you wanted to get started, you were visiting a village where the farthest that most of those fabrics were traveling was the next village over. And mm-hmm. then also that you went to a trade show and there were people who were, you know, only interested in much, much higher minimums. So how did you find the weavers that you ultimately ended up working with? And what did they think of you when you first pitched the idea to them? <laughs> well, <laughs> the group that I started working with, they were actually a government organization and they had like two guys that they had um, they had put in charge of exports and that was their first trade show and they worked out of this uh, this like little uh, stone house <laughs> that had like a hole in it and uh, it looked like a little bombed out house actually and that was what their, their I went to their office there and they showed me some some uh, some of their samples, and um, they had actually had another designer who came from um, from Amsterdam, and she had already started working with them um, and changing the design and changing the jacquard. And so they showed me some of the stuff she had done, and it had a very like Western look, but it was made not a Western look. It was interesting, but it wasn't it wasn't like very Indian looking. And so, in a way, she kind of showed me the way, and 
and showed them the way that they could work with designers, carry out their designs, and um, and create it in the same traditional way and keep people working. So that was my first uh, that was my first supplier, and now I have I have five, and most of them, the rest of them, have all come to me because they found out what I was doing. That's great. So what are what are some of the benefits of hand loom fabric? What was it that made you fall in love with it and, and want to use it and share its story? Well, it's you know, it has something that as you as you very well described, it feels like fabric with soul. It has something that's different. Um I think part of it is that it is imperfect and um like when you look on the edges, you can see it's a little bit wobbly on the edge because the way it's been tied down on the loom. Um, but another thing is it's incredibly soft, especially kadi. And I always wondered, how do they get it so soft? Or why is it so much softer than machine-made fabric, machine-made cotton? And the thing is, because it, a machine cotton, I mean a milled cotton, um, if you consider how much pressure the yarn is under, of the beating of the giant, um, you know, machines, it has to be stiffened. And so they stiffen it to make it hold up to the pressure of the machine. And then once it comes off, they have to soften it. So they're going through this huge up and down, starting with a very organic, you know, soft material, making it harder, and then making it soft again. We don't with Kadi, we don't have to do any of those things. It's literally, they take the cotton, the combed cotton, take all the debris out of it, and straighten out all the fibers, and they twist it into, um, through a process that's basically, like the commercial Kadi making is actually done on these like crank machines, but um, there are, are, are also people out there doing it on like an old bicycle wheel like Gandhi was doing. So um, it goes from that combed cotton and then it's just twisted into yarn and we never put any stiffeners on it. We never put any chemicals on it. So it doesn't need to be softened afterwards. The most we put on is a um, starch that's using um, rice, like a rice starch. If we need to do some kind of design onto like Jimdani, which is a particular design where you put um, something in between the, um, the weft threads. It's a supplemental yarn. Um, and that is that requires that the fabric be a little bit stiffer, so you put a rice starch on it, but that's it. Like, there's, there's nothing else. So you're really, you're really going to be wearing real cotton, minus all those chemicals. Yeah. And it's also cotton that takes a lot more people to weave and, and makes a lot more jobs. How do you go about thinking about and calculating how many how many people are employed by everything that you make? Is that a is that an easy thing to figure out or sounds like there's a well, lot of steps in the chain? We have some statistics about like I mean handloom is a huge industry, but it is in decline. So when you see when you hear about places where it's collapsed, I mean it creates desperation in people because um, it's not only that the weaver is employed, but that weaver is usually having uh, like six family members 
six to eight family members depending on him, but then also he's creating, you know, 10 other side jobs, and that could be like the person who creates the warp. It could, there's a, there's a, a specialty skill where they take out all the knots in the, in the, in the warp when they spread it out, they like spread it out and he'll take out all of the tingles. Um, there are dozens of jobs for mostly women actually who um, put the yarn into spindles and then there's a whole processing of the yarn from once it's dyed, the dyers, uh, it has to go through several cycles of spinning to be ready to be used on a handloom. So it's not just the weaver, it's all these other people underneath him. And then there are specialty um, skills in making jacquards and making designs for handloom um, and um, different kinds of ecot dyeing. I mean, all these skills are dependent on weaving not collapsing. And so Indian government says that um, by using handloom as opposed to a machine-made cloth, um, you're going to employ nine times as many people. And if you think about a machine mill, I mean, it's not that we're trying to, in a way, we're not competing with that. It's like a whole different thing is, um, you know, we, we employ these people and all of them get a, a decent wage so that they can continue to live with their families and not have to leave and go to a town and work in a factory somewhere so it's it's beyond just price and efficiency like we the world has shown that we can be efficient in making fabric but this is uh this is something that i think you make a superior quality product and you employ more people because it's you're having a lot less you're, ha you're having fewer processes um and fewer chemicals yeah. So, yeah. So what are some of the things that are leading to the decline or the collapse of the industry? You, m you mentioned that the government is having to stop providing subsidies and I'm sure there's also a, you know, a crunch towards lower prices, but I'm sure I'm curious if you could yeah. talk more about that and also how weavers are, are working to fight that. Weavers, I mean, it's actually... <laughs> They are trying their best. Um, there are a number of designers um, and Indian designers as well and other people who are very interested in, in this product now. Um, so that's helping. On a, but it's hard to compete with the, like, with the, you know, I, like our fabrics, you can get cotton, you know, for 50 cents a yard. But in handloom, it's not possible to get anything for 50 cents. We, so it's like the price difference is so enormous. So that's one of the issues. Um, so I knew starting out, starting out, we had to elevate handloom to like a high-end product. Um, so I think that that is... Unfortunately, it's probably going to only be a luxury product instead of like a mass market, which in the pre previously it was a mass marketed product because it, there were so many weavers and it was subsidized by the government. And so it could compete. But now because all those things are gone, it's, um, it is a higher price thing. And also, frankly, the world is embracing 
um, man-made fibers and um, the Prime Minister of India recently said that India, that the majority of the world is wearing polyester and India should put its focus on making polyester. Hmm. Um, so a lot of the textile budget that formerly would have gone to handloom has been shifted to giant factories and man-made products. Um, and it's because they make a lot, designers as well as mills make a lot more money pumping out polyester stuff. So um, that's, it's, the, many things are working against the weavers. Um, early on, I knew I couldn't save like the whole industry, but if I could just like save like an area mm -hmm. or at least enlighten people about what is in this area. And like the, the public does respond. Like we are, our products are in some of the finest museum shops. We're in SF MoMA. So we're in Neiman Marcus. Like we have places where like people are responding, but it would take, it would take a lot more effort to save it all over India. But I'm sure some pockets will survive. Yeah. But, do you get to travel to India often to visit the, the weavers oh. you do work with? Oh, yeah. I mean, I have gone, I don't know, maybe 30 times um, just in the last couple of years. <laughs> I go often. I go and meet some of our clients there um, if we're doing a project with uh, another company. Um, I go and check on... I don't have to check so much on production because in the early years, I spent a lot of time in India um, working on quality control and working on like really communicating to the people in India what is required to work with the United States. And I spent a lot of time in the United States educating consumers like, like especially um, like you, someone who makes, um, makes a design and gets carried a custom order from us. Um, so I, I do go back and forth, like especially in the beginning I did it to check on orders and make sure they're done correctly. But now everybody that I work with is pretty well trained. We have a few goof, you know, a few mistakes once in a while, but most of the time they can fulfill orders without me needing to be there. I mostly go to be inspired, um, and I always am inspired actually, and to just visit everybody and and um, see how things are going. I think it's important as a business owner to understand like the. Um, the challenges of the people who work for you. Uh, because when I hear about the problems they have, it helps me articulate how to, um, how to work with my customers. So I spent a lot of my time in India talking to people and finding out what their challenges are and trying to figure out creative solutions. What are some of the biggest challenges that you've been working on over the last few years with them? Um, honestly, I have to say like the weavers and, um, the challenges they have are the challenges like of just working in India. There's a ton of holidays. Um, there aren't that many, um, ways there aren't that the airport is not very big. So it's hard to like during the holidays or during rush time, it's very hard to get stuff out of India because it's just so busy. 
Um, the ports are, they, ha they don't have that many international ports, so a lot of it is, um, it's hard to, so those kinds of things, logistical things. Um, but at, as far as weaving and as far as um, early on, I had some issues with like quality control and color um, and expectations. But nowadays, I don't feel like I have those issues, but it's, it's mostly just like how to get the stuff out of there or how to make deadlines, um, supply issues, because we work with a lot of organic cotton now. So organic cotton has its own particular issues, trying to find the right supplier, stuff like that. It's all, it's not really about quality anymore. They, they, they actually supply fantastic quality. I have like my, le my, my um, sort of the least, the area of least <laughs> issues uh, are the weavers. The weavers are fantastic. That's great, that's great. I mean, probably because of the fact that you were able to build up such a dependable supply of quality in your weavers, you've started partnering with really big brands. Like you mentioned, you were in Neiman Marcus. I know you partnered with The Gap to create a tunic using um, handwoven fabric. So what is it like to partner with these really large companies? And Well, actually, we, um, we work with Athleta, which is a Gap company. Okay. Um, yeah, well, it's fantastic. It's actually wonderful. We would love to do more of it. Um, we do it because it is, I mean, it really creates so many more jobs. I made this decision a long time ago when I was sitting in my shop in Brooklyn. And I was like, you know, I could continue just designing and, and we can make all different kinds of products. Um, because I was considering where to spend my resources, time and money. And it was the time that Eileen Fisher approached me and I thought, well, I could say, okay, I'm just gonna have my brand and um, work my way up this way. Um, but if I work with these larger brands, they can place orders that are gonna create so, so many more jobs. Um, my profit margin is not going to be as high because I have to be, you know, I have to, in a way, keep my, um, keep the prices reasonable because, um, you know, it has to be within the, in a way we're competing against machine made, sure. machine made yeah. things. So we have to always, our margins are pretty, pretty, pretty small for larger brands because they also have to market up and you know their whole like um, they have to sell it in retail prices. So, so it really was a decision, um, like because the mission and the reason I started this company was to create jobs, and so uh, that's our favorite kind of customers to work with a large organization. It also helps because it's um, it helps us with buying raw materials so like Eileen Fisher really um, they only work with organic cotton so because they have the volume we can buy bulk um, amounts of organic cotton which helps us with our you know which then we can have some of that cotton for our own products because we had we have the volume to buy the bulk so 
Um, and it's also, you know, the whole goal of the company is to create jobs and eventually to have a, um, I would love to create like a whole zone where companies can come and get their products made. Um, and, uh, you know, like we could really triple what we do already with, with the area we have, but there are so many more people who are willing to work for us. Um, you know, it's, it's heartbreaking when I go to the village and we don't have a large order because the problem is when you start working in large volume, people also invest in you. Sure. Yeah. So they're not going to take another job. They're going to wait for your job and, um, and they're expecting it to continue. And, and then like it's so, <laughs> so it's definitely something we, we would love to do more of and, um, because I feel a responsibility for those 500 weavers that work with us now. You know, we want to give them continuous work, and that's always been my goal. And um, I can do that with a large company. It's hard for me to do it as a like a smaller company, like just Indigo Handloom. We supply to scarves to about 300 retail stores, but you know, an Eileen Fisher or an Athleta, they have a much bigger reach so yeah it really helps yeah that makes a lot of sense are you finding more and more of the big companies are starting to reach out to you like is handloom feel like it it could be coming into a trend or um i feel like honestly that the younger people that are in these companies are the ones i like when we were at the dj expo and when we went to the la textile shows uh, it was always uh, young designers that would be enthusiastic and so excited about what we were doing. Um, so I feel like as they grow in the companies that they're in, we will have more of that. But the large companies are also very um, bottom line oriented. And it is, it is a hard sell like sometimes to uh, have them pay a much higher price for handloom. What I find is that the companies who have some kind of mission where they have our mandate, where they want to be more green or they want to have an eco-friendly line or something inside internally, they've made a decision that they want to be um, more green. Those are the best kinds of customers because then they can tolerate like Handloom can do a lot of things, but the two things that Handloom cannot do is it cannot be as cheap as machine-made anything, and it takes time. So those are the two um, stumbling blocks we have with um, working with designers is um, most designers are used to um, having a much faster turnaround for any kind of custom design, so that's the one thing I have to train or talk to people a lot about like you have to back up your um expectations for you know the timeline it takes about 10 to 12 weeks for anything to be made custom so that's one thing that you know it's it's a uh, there it's difficult to work like um with the traditional fashion company that's why if they make an internal decision then it makes all these other things, they will adjust to all the other issues. So. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. 
So what's on the horizon in 2018 for Indigo Handloom? What are you feeling most excited about or most worried about or both? <laughs> it's always the same, yeah. right? The excitement and the worry. It's like, ah, should I do this? Well, we are doing a lot more beach cover-ups and resort wear. Um, we're doing our own clothing. Um, a lot of it is done with organic cotton. We're doing a lot of ecots. Um, yeah, we're doing clothing. We also have like nightgowns um and the nightgowns came about because i did a lot of work a lot of research on what like i started wearing the fabrics a lot more because i got so sick of those soulless polyester fabrics out there and i couldn't find anything to wear so i started wearing samples and started making things and i just felt like my body was responding to them like in a in a way, it's like I wake up in the morning and I just could not bear to wear anything else and um, except just pure cotton. And I thought, maybe there's something more than just, I like these fabrics, maybe there's something else to it. And I started researching and there's actually a ton of things that, that, um, that I found really make me embrace my fabrics even more. And it's um, the fact that our fabrics have very few chemicals on them and most modern fabrics have a ton of chemicals and none of it is regulated and it's it's because in a way our society is demanding more um, convenience with our clothing so everything everyone wants everything to be wrinkle free and stain free and waterproofed and wicking and all these things and um, all those things are happening but they're doing they're doing it all with chemicals that um, some of which are actually incredibly harmful. But, and everybody thinks that there's some agency keeping track of all of it. And it's basically almost self-regulated. There's very little, there's very little regulation. So, um, so that's, that's why we started the nightwear because I felt like women spend so much time we all are, spend so much of our time sleeping. And so that's the one place where I could have the most impact about like, if you want to detox your closet, that would be the one place, that's the one garment in your, in your, in your clothing, which you would probably use the most. So we have those as well. That's great. Well, I wish I could talk to you all day long about your company and, and your weavers and what's on the horizon, because it's, it's really interesting to hear all about it. But I know you're really busy and have lots of things to do. Um, But before we wrap up, could you share with people how they can find out more about Indigo Handloom, how designers can work with you and, or where people can purchase your scarves? Sure. Um, You just go to our website. You can purchase there and learn more about us. It's www.indigohandloom.com. And um, as far as designers, um, there is a button for designers and you can, um, basically we just can only sell to registered businesses. So you have to upload your business certificate or your resale license and then we give you a password and you can take a look at all our fabrics that we have available. That's great. Um, And I will link to your website uh, in the show notes to this episode so people can also easily find it. And um, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you. Thank you. It was my pleasure. That's a wrap for this episode. 
If you'd like to see photos of the weavers Smita works with in India and the stunning fabric they create, as well as links to Indigo Hand Loom, you will find it in the show notes at www.gistyarn.com slash episode hyphen six. That's G-I-S-T-Y-A-R-N dot com. You can also sign up there to have the show notes emailed to you each Monday morning if you'd like to start out the week with some beautiful weaving inspiration. And if you haven't already found your way to our Facebook group, you should come join us. You can request to join at www.facebook.com slash groups slash weave hyphen podcast. Next week on the podcast, I'm talking to Avery Williamson, an artist and weaver who explores the history of Black Americans, specifically women, in personal and institutional archives. We had a fascinating and inspiring conversation, and I'm really looking forward to sharing it with you next Monday morning. Until then, happy weaving!